hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Professor Shalini George of Suffolk University Law School. Uh, Professor George teaches legal writing, and her scholarship focuses in the areas of lawyer well-being, mindfulness, and the cognitive science of learning. She's the author of the recently released The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well. We have a copy of it right here. Uh, as well as the co-author of Mindful Lawyering, The Key to Creative Problem Solving, and Law Review Articles on Distraction in the Cognitive Science of Learning and Why Law Students Need Mindfulness and Training. Uh, Professor George is joining us today uh, to speak to some students on a panel, and we're uh, kind enough to steal just a little bit of our time uh, to talk about the topic of mental health, which is obviously extraordinarily important in any context, particularly in the context of law school and, and lawyering, which is certainly a field with uh, no shortage of stress, no shortage of anxiety, and a lot of the things which we'll try to touch upon here today um, that can create issues that are you know, obviously very important, and we want to you know, just, just have a discussion on some of that today. Uh, Professor George, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you, Tom? Good. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. I just want to apologize at the beginning. The allergies are in full bloom, so this <laughs> voice you have to deal with today. Apologies in advance. Um, no well, first of all, can you just talk to us a little bit, uh, first of all, about yourself? I know we kind of have the the bio there from from the law school website but anything you want folks to know that they might not know about you uh, take it away sure well i am a bc alum uh, so it's nice to be back here although i have to say this law library is a little different than the one i studied in um, and i understand the allergies because everything's beautifully in blue bloom on campus so it is really nice to be back here um, i've been teaching legal writing for 18 years and i think a little fun fact is that when i decided I wanted to get into writing, I contacted my legal writing professor, Nora Wiley, who was mm -hmm. here at BC, and she sort of uh, gave me some good advice as to how to, to make that transition. So I've been teaching legal writing for quite some time, but I am deeply fascinated in learning, in wellness, um, how we can combine sort of uh, our interests in and out of the law to really be our whole selves um, in the practice of law. So when you came out of uh, law school, you went uh, obviously into, into legal writing as an interest of yours. How did the topic of well-being and mental health, how, how did that interest develop for you? Yeah, it's been an interest um, a long time in the making, to be honest. And again, a combination of personal and professional interests. So about 10 years after I had started uh, teaching legal writing, I was noticing some changes in my students that I was particularly interested in. And so my journey to well-being actually started with an interest in learning. Uh, that law review article that you mentioned earlier on the cognitive science of learning was a law review article that I wrote to address what I found to be the increasingly distracted nature of my students. Uh, cell phones, mm -hmm. laptops, mm -hmm. uh, and I was seeing them. Uh, I knew they were not paying attention to me all the time in the classroom the way that I wanted them to. And instead of being sort of a grumpy old law professor complaining about kids these days, I thought I would do a little bit of research and try to determine whether there really was an impact on our learning. And I found there was. Uh, mm -hmm. Distraction is not good for any of us. Um, so when I identified a problem with distraction as I was doing my research, the antidote for distraction kept coming up in that research, which is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So from uh, distraction, I turned to thinking about mindfulness, how mindfulness was something that I thought law students um, could use in helping them develop focus and the ability to concentrate the way that lawyers need to concentrate. So as I continued in that work, I then got, got uh, you know, to the point where I wanted to think even beyond mindfulness. And as I expanded my research um, and sort of looked into what people are talking about these days, I realized that a broader focus on well-being is actually where we kind of all need to be. 
Um, notice I say well-being, not wellness. Mm. Um, wellness, I think, implies the absence of sickness. So if you go to the doctor and you don't have a temperature, well, you're well, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what, what I was finding is that a lot of us are not really thriving. We're not um, finding happiness right. in the study or the practice of law. And so my interest in well-being was in trying to think about how to bring all of that together in a way that we could talk about in law school things that had never been talked about before. What are some of the stresses associated with the study of law and with the practice of law? What is the impact of those? How can we prepare ourselves to better handle them so that we can maintain longevity um, in the career? So it was sort of a culmination of 10 or 12 years of, of uh, research and thinking about how I can really best address the needs of my students and to hopefully send them out uh, into the practice really equipped um, to be able to handle some some of what they face. So I think that's an important point. Obviously, the the when you talk about wellness, you know, obviously the the absence of, of of illness does not imply. Well, I mean, there's and I, I think back to you know courses I took on like health psychology things like that. The the idea of a sort of biopsychosocial approach to health, where it's not just that. Well, you know, you you look okay. You're not sick. You know, there, there's a lot of inputs to 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 to, to well-being, and I, and I think that's an important point um, to make. So a, as you um, you know sort of developed this interest and, and started going down this road, um, what, what what did you discover? I mean, I, it seems like this is this has been quite an effort. I mean, you have a book. You're here speaking to us today. Um, when you, when you look at like today's law students and today's uh, lawyers, as you got more into this research and more into this. Uh, field with, with with this lens of sorts that you've been talking about. What w w what's going on today primarily? It's maybe a little bit different before. It's a little bit more challenging for for students now as opposed to students then. Well, I think the, there's a 24-7 nature um, mm -hmm. of work and of life these days that is not something that I faced, for example, when I was in law school. Yeah. Um, I tell my students um, on occasion how I had no uh, email when I was mm -hmm. in law school. We had we had, didn't have cell phones. Right. Um, so I couldn't just shoot off a thought or receive somebody's thoughts, right. you know, instantaneously. There's less information overload. Right. We probably overloaded ourselves in different ways. Right. Um, but there is a tremendous availability of information and an expectation of instantaneous response. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this idea that we should be working all the time, mm -hmm. right? So you have to bill a certain number of hours or you have to study for an exam or you have a legal writing memo that's due. You mm -hmm. think I'm going to spend all of this time doing it. So what I've come to realize, and that's why the title of the book is about doing well and being well, is that actually if we want to do well, so mm -hmm. as lawyers we obviously do, um, we want to do well. What we offer our clients is the ability to think, argue, persuade, be creative, solve mm -hmm. problems, right? We don't have um, medical instruments. We don't, uh, we don't paint. We don't build things. We build things with our minds. And so shouldn't we be thinking about how we can put our brains in the best position to be able to do those tasks? So things that people previously maybe had thought of as good for physical health or mental health, like exercise, nutrition, sleep, um, building resiliency, dealing with stress. We, we know those things are good for our bodies. We know that, that there are certain things that maybe are good for mental health. What we hadn't realized or what I hadn't realized until I was writing my book or had the idea for the book is that those things are essential to brain health. Mm -hmm. So if we know that it's good for our brains and we know we want our brains to perform better, they are things we should be attending to. And yet... It's sort of it, this, the stress Olympics, right, mm -hmm. is how many hours did you spend in the library? How long right. did you study for this? How many hours did you bill last night? How late were you in the office? Yeah. And we were taking pride in those things. 
when it's actually not resulting in the productivity that we were hoping for. Sure. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, uh, with, with what's brought you to campus today and, and some other resources that we have. And then I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, a lot of the, the concerns that are important to students uh, in their day-to-day when it comes to this topic. So uh, we were talking a little bit uh, beforehand about another alumni of the school, Jim Warner, and uh, yes. this panel that you're here for today. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, Jim is a, is a law school friend of mine. He graduated, um, I think, a year before me. We fell out of touch for a brief period of time, but he reached out to me on LinkedIn um, when he saw some of the work that I've been doing around this topic. And we sort of uh, started talking about how law students and lawyers often feel that they are alone in their struggles, mm-hmm. um, whether it's mental health, addiction, or just generalized generalized anxiety or unhappiness, feeling unfulfilled in the practice of law. We, we all think that we're the only ones feeling that way. Um, And how can we change that? So one of the things I think that you can do to change that is to break that stigma, to have these conversations about what people are struggling with. I think Jim's idea was to build a network of BC alum that could be available to current BC students um, or to those students as they graduate to be able to tell their stories. Like, here are things that I struggled with and here's how I tackled some of those things. To be a resource so that those students are not isolated, are not by themselves having these issues and trying to figure out on their own ways um, to overcome the struggles. So I think today's event, we're going to hear from some alumni who all have faced um, significant challenges and have found ways to come back from them. So I, I think that the title of the panel is about resiliency and in times of difficulty. And, you know, that's really the whole idea is that no one should feel that they're the only ones um, struggling with, um, you know, all of the burdens that come along with being a lawyer. Absolutely. Um, so I want to touch on a few other, you know, resources on campus just out of practicality mm-hmm. for folks um, that have been sort of highlighted for me. We have uh, BC therapist Eileen Thompson is on the Newton campus on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Students can schedule appointments through the main number of university counseling services. Um, we also, uh, the school recommends people to reach out to academic and student services. Uh, we have an active LSA wellness committee and some initiatives that are being worked on there. Library also has, uh, the law library has a number of wellness activities such as therapy dogs, guided meditations and, 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 and some other things that folks can look into. So obviously you want to encourage people to, to utilize those resources. Um, with that being said, I wanted to sort of touch on some of the things that go on in law school that, that, that particularly drive a lot of um, these issues and, and just sort of get your, your, your thoughts on, on them. So, you know, one of the things in particular, and, and we've had these conversations before, you know, the, the, just going back to the very beginning of all this, the, the kinds of people, you know, the, there's an element of self-selection, the kinds of people who are, number one, interested in law school, number one, you know, I- interested in these issues and in, in this work, and the people who, um, you know, c- c- can, I hate to use the word qualify, because if, you know, anybody puts in the time and the effort, you'd think they can get the LSAT, excuse me, get the LSAT score, get the grade, you know, et cetera. Um, but obviously, the people who are, who, who want to come do this, there's a certain mindset, a certain skill set, a certain aptitude um, for being able to think critically about logic and arguments and reason and, 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 and sort of having, uh, you know, the ability to, 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 to do some of those jobs, which are adversarial at times, which are, which are stressful at times. Uh, and it can create an environment that, uh, you know, some people might call it toxic. Some people could, uh, you know, call it cutthroat. You know, there's all sorts of adjectives that you can put in there. Um, but, but what would you say about that, that just sort of the, the minds of folks going into law school that, 
you know, there, there's people who are particularly, I hate to use the word predisposed, but people come into law school and like, you know, there's a certain mindset that's there to begin with. Or is it that once you get into this environment that's competitive, that's stressful, it's all those things that, you know, once that environment goes to work on you, you, you tend to have issues then or, or are people already bringing certain things to law school before this all even begins? It's probably both. Yeah. Um, certainly there's a ter- certain type of student that's attracted to law school. It's right. a student who's been successful in the past, who's bright, who's had achievements, who has this dream uh, of, of being a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And then we come to law school and we're faced with uh, the adversarial system from mm-hmm. the very start, right? All of your first year of law school, for the most part, is is someone suing someone, um, two parties going against each other, someone's a winner, someone's a loser. Right. So we set that up from the very start. So mm-hmm. the adversarial system plays into it. I think there's some perfectionism right. that is uh, typical of law students that plays into it. There's a lot of imposter syndrome right. where people have been um, high achievers before and then in this new environment where they are placed in a, a different kind of learning environment, uh, and indirect competition with one another. Uh, the law school curve certainly uh, plays into it, of which I am not the biggest fan. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that, actually. Yeah, so those all are all things that I touch on um, in the first chapter of my book as to why uh, law students unfortunately have a lot of challenges, um, and it is resulting in a higher level of stress and anxiety for law students than a lot of other graduate students. True. So those are some of the factors that um, I think researchers believe have played into that mm-hmm. Um where uh, law students face a particularly um, challenging uh, environment for their mental health. Sure. I want to follow up directly on that. So I think that a lot of, you know, particularly some of the things that I that I listed there and a lot of the ways people tend to, um, you know, cope with these things c- can be looked at as sort of treating the, treating the symptom and not the cause. The mm-hmm. cause of a lot of this are structural, uh, you know, reasons. You, you mentioned the curve. I know that's something that weighs heavily on the minds of, of, of law students that, you know, I think almost every school has some version of, of the curve. And of course, the curve is you're graded against one another. There's only so many A's and B's and so on and so forth. Yes. Um, I, I guess not to put it too bluntly, why do we do that? Like, I feel like <laughs> inevitably you shouldn't be surprised if you're grading people against the person sitting next to them. You know, some of these issues feel inevitable, but here we are in 2022 and it's still the, the it's still what's on the books at law schools across the country. What? Well, you, I know you said you're not a fan. I can't imagine the curve has many fans, but c- can you talk a little bit about that? I think the curve may have fans in uh, faculty who've been teaching for some time right. and people who are you know, part of the system and it, it worked for them. Oh. And it's difficult for them to think that it could work well in another way. Uh, I think law firms play into it when they ask for your rankings. Mm-hmm. You know, a big, big law wants to know what your class rank is. Um, and so there are a lot of factors in the job market, in faculty, in institutions that have always run a particular way. Mm-hmm. Change comes remarkably slow to institutions of law. Right. Um, it's one of the things that surprised me the most when I, when I came to law school is I always pictured law school as being sort of this progressive place. And it, I'm afraid it, it's not always progressive. It takes, it takes time. Now, a couple of um, things are happening that I think are encouraging Mm-hmm. So the ABA has really been paying attention. Uh, the ABA Task Force on National, uh, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing, um, issued a report that I'm going to talk about uh, later in the panel, which has tried to identify that lawyers actually have six dimensions of well-being, and their work dimension is only one of the six. Mm-hmm. So um, a frank conversation about the fact that we are not just automatons or mm-hmm. robots who can bill or work however many number of hours 
professors or um, bosses uh, may want us to work. That's Mm -hmm. one thing. The Supreme Judicial Court has a standing committee on lawyer well-being now that has been issuing recommendations um, that are relevant to well-being in the practice of law and also relevant to legal education. There's a subcommittee on um, legal education, uh, and I'm co-chairing that subcommittee for the next year. So it is my great hope that mm-hmm. that we will start to have more conversations about how we can make some changes, at least around the edges. Yeah. You know, maybe we don't overthrow the system all at once, but right. I think some incremental changes could really have an effect. Um, there's a new organization called the Institute for Well-Being in Law, mm-hmm. um, of which I am also a member. And so in all of these institutions and organizations, there are conversations happening about these topics that you raise mm-hmm. and about how they are not uh, adding up to a recipe for well-being. And so how can we start to make those changes? Sure. Uh, and in looking at change overall, I know you said that, and I think most folks would agree, you know, institutions, particularly uh the institution of, of the law, the practice of the law is very slow moving and making a lot of these, uh, you know, structural changes. And one thing is you, you know, I've heard and I've heard professors and deans and folks young and old talk about, and you get to, you hate to use a term that's this um, heavy, but I, I sort of heard, heard it used um, in relation to this, this idea of like, I should almost call it, you know, sort of like intergenerational trauma, this idea of, well, this is how we had to do it. Hazing. You know, right. Hey, when we were in law school, this is what they made us do. And so that's the way it ought to be just because that's not, not really for any substantive reason. It's just that's the way this has always been. So let's just keep doing it that way. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you change something like that? I mean, the, the people responsible for changing these things are the same people who say a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So I, I really think of it. It's so if you think of it as hazing, then mm-hmm. you realize it's not just law schools or law firms. That, right. This is kind of, I think, how humans operate. Like, I did this, so why can't you do it too? Mm -hmm. We are really starting to make some changes. Um, So I'm teaching a class. I taught a class this past year at Suffolk. I'll be Mm -hmm. teaching it again the next year as an experiment called Preparing for Professional Success. We use my textbook as well as a lot of other um, information and materials on positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And we talk about things in that class and we work on things in that class that just have never really been addressed openly in law school. Okay. So we worked on um, developing the ability to focus and concentrate. We worked on study skills. We worked on networking. We worked on this uh, the illusion of you know, chasing happiness, that happiness mm-hmm. comes from a particular job or right. comes from, uh, you know, being in a particular location. And my students just submitted their final paper, and I've been reading through those papers. And some of the things they say is that this class is one of the only opportunities where they felt like they were a person, not just a law student, mm-hmm. where they got to talk about, um, you know, what was it that brought them to law school. And the first year of law school tends to somehow um, pound that out of you a little bit. You know, you had this great dream of being a, a, I don't know, criminal defense attorney, and suddenly you're studying, you know, constitutional law and torts, and you just mm-hmm. don't, civil procedure, and it's really hard to connect what you're studying with what it was you thought you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So we had the opportunity to, to talk with the students to remind them what brought them to law school to help them try to see those connections. So classes like this one, I'm, I'm certainly not the, the only person there are uh, a handful of other law schools that are are trying some version of a class like mm-hmm. this that I think is the type of thing that can start to make a difference. Sure. Um, I wanted to turn to some of the social dimensions of these issues. I think one of the things you notice is that the legal profession in its relationship with you know notions of prestige this idea of oh, this is the most prestigious firm or the most prestigious school with the highest yeah. rank with the you know and so on and so forth I, you know it's it's hard to find another area where where where, where sort of that 
dichotomy is, is, is the way that it is um, in the law. How does how, how does that sort of um, you know willingness that 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 want for you know, uh, whether it's class rank or it's I, I, I finished with, with these Latin honors or I won this award or I got, it's, et cetera. It feels like there can be no end uh, to, to that sort of pursuit of prestige. And it seems like it's something that's very firmly encoded within the legal field. How do you feel about that? I wonder if that's unique to the legal field or mm-hmm. if that's a little bit human nature. So w- there was a great TED Talk, and I wish I could remember. Um, I cannot remember the speaker's name, but there's a TED Talk that we had our students listen to in this first um, in this pilot class that I was discussing, and it was about chasing happiness um, mm-hmm. and the idea that if you if you think that you're going to be happy for achieving one of those things that mm-hmm. you talked about, you ha- you have to recognize that you achieve the one thing and then you just move on to worrying about something else. So these conversations about what actually makes us happy, about what is our meaning and purpose in life, Mm -hmm. how do we transcend from just thinking about what was my grade here to what am I learning, how am I going to be using this in my career, I think those things are are essential to taking the focus away. And and I think just as people, we, we, we cling to things, class rank, grades, um, you know, methods of comparing ourselves. And so just having those conversations about comparing less externally and thinking about who we are internally, what is it that drives us? Where do we find actual happiness? It's rarely from achieving one of these things and more from connecting back to who are we, you know, what what kind of family, who is in my family, what actually gives me joy, not happiness. Sure. Uh, I also want to talk about um, when when students come to law school. Students come with variety different variety of you know different levels of you know experience with the law, levels of, of, of privilege. You have people who come from families of lawyers, and then you have on the other hand students who are first generation or students who are uh, you know students of color, students who are of low socioeconomic status who you know come to law school with I think profoundly different levels of, of, of wealth and, and pedigree. And uh, some people you know if you're have lawyers in the family, you sort of already kind of know what you're doing. Right. You know what this is about. Whereas other people who might be first gen don't have some of those built-in advantages. How, how does sort of class and uh, diversity and, and, and really the, just the diversity of sort of backgrounds that people come to law school from affect uh, some of these outcomes when it comes to these things that students struggle with? Particularly challenging, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that we um, have been talking a lot about in terms of what should we include in this pilot class. Mm-hmm. And I did hear from from students. So I did this class where we practiced networking, right? We did like a speed networking where, right. you know, seven of them were the person, you know, um, I said, you run into, you, you're interested in working for the criminal defense um, or you're interested in being a public defender or you're mm-hmm. interested, you know, and let's say you're walking to the T and you run into somebody who you interviewed with. How do you start that conversation? And I came up with seven different scenarios that they had to practice in right. speed rounds, you know. And so by the end of class, they had practiced giving like 10 elevator pitches or things like that. Awesome. And I, what I heard from students was that that's the kind of thing that they actually made them feel like, okay, so this is this is how you do it. You know, this yeah. is how you talk. This is how, yeah. and we came up with a list of um, here are some good opening lines, here are some closing lines, here's how you start a conversation, here's how you talk about the law when you don't even yet know exactly what you want to do. So opening up conversations that uh, have felt secretive, I think, mm-hmm. before, and and recognizing that that there are a lot of students who perhaps don't, especially at Suffolk, um, you know, we we. Um, 
pride ourselves in the type of student that we want to encourage and to bring into law school. And so mm-hmm. I think the onus is on us as an institution to help students. Um, that's why the class is called Preparing for Professional Success, but to give them these types of tools that do not exist in the law school environment um, enough. Yeah, I think that's really great. And, you know, I think of this expression in sports, you know, act like you've been there. And I think for folks who come from backgrounds where they haven't you know, proverbially been there, you how know, do you so act to speak. like you've been there? You don't know how to, I mean, I, I, I've, you know, I mean, I'll disclose me. I'm a first generation student. I remember, you know, going to networking events within the law early on, you'll have people in front of you in line who will, you'll hear say, Oh, well, my uncle at this firm, right. someone, and you're like, what am I doing? You know, there's, there's, right. there's a lot of that there. And I, and I think that, you know, sort of what you're talking about, what you're doing, education isn't just about torts and contracts and so forth. For a lot of those, you know, we tend to call them soft skills or, yeah. or sort of what you need to have in your toolbox to succeed um, on a professional front and get some of those jobs that people are after. It's not always a level playing field. I think that that's a really important, um, you know, in, endeavor there. And that's a that's a good program to, to be to be putting on a lot of. A lot of schools have a professional, mm-hmm. you know, career development office that that tries to do these and does a lot of this work. I think what's unique is if you put it in a classroom, yeah, you're sending a message to students that it is that important, right? That it's something that the school, the institution stands behind, and right. that they want to help you learn, not as an extracurricular or you choose to go to a networking seminar and so you get that information but trying to put it into a classroom ideally you know a a mandatory class first year yeah i think would be uh, exactly what's needed so that even students who don't know they need it end up getting some of that information that's excellent um i also wanted to talk about uh you know one of these uh, you think of movies like like Legally Blonde. You know, you, yes. you think of the pop culture and this idea of, uh, and I don't know how many people have told me this over time. You know, law schools like high school um, and, and and things of that nature. Um, you know, obviously, you, know, you you do come to law school and uh, through a variety of reasons. I'm sure you you, you know them better than I do. Uh, you know, you can call them clicks. You can call them. Uh, I mean, however you want to look at it, that there is that. Um, dimension to things. I think at, you know, BC Law, we pride ourselves on being a very, you know, collegial uh, school, or I, I don't really believe um, there's a ton of that, but, you know, sort of naturally, every law school is in a pretty similar place in terms of the way the legal market works, the way the, the education of the law uh, works, and a lot of these dynamics are, uh, are, are, are tough to uproot. Um, we've talked about the curve, we've talked about competition, we've talked about a lot of these dynamics, but this this expression that seems to have had such staying power over oh, well, law schools like high school. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like you go back to a pretty significant amount of time, and that has kind of always been the case. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? Like separate apart from I guess careers, classes, etc. Yeah. That social dynamic. I mean, we spent a lot of time in law school. You know, in your three years here, or around uh, you know your peers. You know, you hope to make uh, good friend groups and, and have some healthy. Um, relationships there. But, but, but what, what's going on with that? Why is that idea so pervasive in, in law school? So I'm going to keep talking about my class. Sure. <laughs> but I think one issue, and I certainly found it at BC, I felt like I had stepped, I went to college and then I went, stepped back to high school. Um, mm-hmm. This was in your here. time here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I hear that from my students at Suffolk as well. Yeah. So I think the 1L sections mm-hmm. uh, really contribute to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're you're in this group and you travel with this group. It's like homeroom in high school. It is. Yeah. It is. So one of the things I did with my pilot class, um, which Suffolk was supported and it was not simple, was mm-hmm. that 
um, the students were, we picked a time where no 1L classes were held. Mm -hmm. And so my pilot class had students from all different sections in it. And I think one of the things they tell me they liked the best was the ability to make friends Mm -hmm. or to talk openly. We talked a lot about struggles in that class. And to be able to talk openly about struggles or what they were finding challenging outside of their section, outside of the people that they thought they were competing with was something that was really, really helpful to them. So I, we have we have started thinking, and I don't want to put words into anybody's mouth here, but we've I've I've heard the suggestion at Suffolk. A little that, birdie told you that maybe we would think about changing the one L section mm-hmm. um, system, and I think that's another example of what we were talking about earlier. Like it's always been done that way, so yeah. it's like crazy to think right. about changing a it. Radical, but I think it would be um, a really good thing for students' mental health in general. Yeah. It would expose them to more people. You'd have a chance to make um, friends beyond just kind of this click that you travel from class to class with. Mm-hmm. S- completely separate from that, something that I talk about in the book and which I talk about quite often when I do um, when I do the kind of kinds of presentations that we're doing today, is this idea of shutting down that twenty four seven aspect of our lives. Right. So if you are with these students all day long and you have a study group, you know, and you're with those students and then you go home and you're still trying to study, 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 Mm -hmm. you're never leaving time for the types of things that can sustain you. Um, So activities that you like to do, friends or family from outside of law school, watching TV, playing video games, you know, you're not going to do it. You can't do it all the time. Right. But actually finding a way to shut off law school and do the things that made you kind of a happy and um, contented person, the things that one enjoyed doing before they went to law school, finding time to still have those um, things in your day. It requires sort of scheduling and thinking about maybe how your week looks. And if you have to study late one night because you have an exam the next day, that's okay. But still like shut it down at some particular time, put all of those things away and then indulge in the thing that that actually makes you kind of who you were before you came to law school. I um, think. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think the idea of the sections. I mean, that, that sort of echoes my own experience. I remember one L. You know, we'd have obviously there, there was like you know you, you're in your sections for all of your classes, but then in the second semester, at least here at PC Law, uh, you you have an elective, so you have a choice right. of an elective you want in the spring. Um, and when you register for that elective, it's sort of open to everyone from every section. So when you in you know, I think my year was a little bit different because this was like the COVID, COVID. first year. And so you're even more uh, sort of bifurcated into these, you know, this is who you're going to school with and social distance from everyone else, which, yeah, obviously isn't isn't the norm. But I remember getting to that elective and being in class with people I've never met mm-hmm. uh, and they were on Zoom. And I remember like within the first few weeks, you, you'd go into breakout rooms and like, hey, how are you? I'm so-and-so. You're so, oh, yeah, what do you, you know, you like golf? And then like we, we put like a, a golf group together of like 10 guys and it's mm-hmm. like, that you know, when you're when you're all sort of put into these individual sections, that you're uh, you're a captive audience, and, right. and so I think that breaking down some of those barriers, along maybe a little bit more normal um, socialization, is, a, is is an interesting idea. I think that definitely is that, that there's some opportunity there. Right, and again, so trying to send that message that yeah. that's an important skill in law school. We don't we've never talked about those things right. before. Uh, there's something also about human nature, right? Where you walk into a classroom and you just keep sitting in the same spot. Yeah. You know, and we all do it everywhere. Right. You know, I go You're to unassigned the gym. assigned seat. Yeah. I go to the gym. I stand in the same spot. Yeah. You know, I teach. I stand in the same spot. And so whether the students mean to or not, they yeah. are all then even within a section, they usually are in that spot. Right. And so that the elective is a great example, um, you know, just 
finding a way to break out of that. 100%. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, because I understand you've uh, got to get off to, uh, to, to, to speak to us, is uh, just this idea of the environment, this idea of structural um, issues. We, we've touched on this a little bit, but you know, so often, um, you know, what's, what's put out there is like, well, here's, we sort of shift the burden onto the individual to figure out how to cope, how to, yeah. how to deal with the, the, the way that they're feeling, as opposed to spending some time thinking about the causes of that. I know we've talked a good bit about the curve, you know, we, there, there's obviously the way, um, depending on what, you know, school you're going to, there's a lot of factors there in terms of, you know, career outcomes and things like that. Um, that weighs very heavily on people's minds, uh, trying to get the, the, the job that they, um, are interested in, but well, within law school, you know, whether it's the curve, whether it's sections, which we just talked about, it seems like the, the root cause of a lot of these things comes down to sort of administrative decision-making structural things that are really beyond the control of any one student. Um, I, I, I guess going forward, how do you feel about, um, building some of this awareness and, and, and administrations at these schools, maybe becoming a little bit more willing to uh, roll back some things that have been in place for a really long time now that we understand the way this is uh, contributing to the way folks are feeling. We're really trying to work on that. Yeah. Um, so this, uh, I mentioned earlier, the Legal Education Subcommittee of the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing um, has issued some reports with mm -hmm. suggestions about these sorts of topics. Um, what I hope to do in the next year as one of the co-chairs is talk about, go to school, schools mm -hmm. and talk about why these sorts of changes are necessary. Mm -hmm. um, also, I'm, I don't know if you're aware, probably not, something that, I, that I'm uh, very aware of, but I, I recognize not everybody is, but the ABA has just passed some new regulations. So one of which calls for law schools to instruct students on something they call professional identity formation. Mm -hmm. They go on to suggest that that, uh, so but what professional identity formation is, is again, like who, who are you as a lawyer? What do you hope to be as a lawyer? What are the skills and talents that you brought to law school? How can your law school experience add to those so that you go out into the world and you actually practice the kind of law or be the kind of lawyer that you want to be? It requires much more than just the sort of typical law school curriculum. Right. The ABA has suggested that um, self-reflection, well-being, um, that these types of, of um, classes, they don't actually say classes. What they say is um, because uh, the forming of, of a professional identity is something that takes time and requires reflection, mm -hmm. they encourage uh, schools to offer curricular, co-curricular, and professional development activities to students in every year of law school at multiple times. Mm -hmm. I think that that, and they want to know by next, so this fall, they want schools to be thinking about how they're going to meet that requirement, and by fall of 2023, schools are supposed to have a plan in place. Mm -hmm. That, and I'm doing a lot of um, conferences and speaking and going to things this summer where everyone's like, okay, yeah. now what do we do? Like we have to meet this requirement. And this, the ABA, um, one really important function it serves is to sort of nudge schools yeah. that here's a change that we really think that you need to make. Now the ABA is sometimes slow in, in um, changing regulations. So if the ABA is saying it now, this means this has been something that we've needed for a very long time. Right. That 
though may be the impetus really right. to start to get more of those structural changes that you're talking about because when schools have to report to the ABA about what they're doing mm. they ha- they are suddenly going to be much more conscious of needing actual concrete steps and not you know a program here or a program there right you know, I know at Suffolk we, we've tried a few things like Wellness Wednesday programming, Fit mm-hmm. Friday programming, and we get a handful of students, probably the handful who already know right. that they need this programming. So this um, this movement by the ABA I think is really going to help drive home the point to all law schools that they need to be thinking more holistically about their students, their whole people, their whole beings, not just right. the ones who take the exams um, you know, or who right. prepare for the bar exams. So the BC, obviously being a judge, school the idea of the cura person else the whole person is yes. uh, kind of what we're going for i, I yes. guess i lied on the last question i have one last question if that's all, all right. right uh which is the role of employers particularly yeah. firms I, I know that you know when, when schools look at changing policies like i know there's some schools that don't have grades and there's this idea well yeah, okay well if we got rid of grades but then our rival school still has them and firms are used to evaluating people on grades well that's going to hurt us and obviously you know when when the salaries that some of these bigger firms are things that students are particularly uh, interested in pursuing for a variety of reasons. How much of a role do, do firms and employers have in, in, in sort of dictating a lot of this? Because a lot of times the school is, uh, or schools generally, really any school is, is mindful of the way these decisions could impact the competitiveness of their students um, in the marketplace. So what role, if any, are, is there for the employers in, in this whole environment? They have a big responsibility here. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a big responsibility, and that, I think, is where we're seeing. So we talked about how law schools mm-hmm. change slowly. Well, law firms also change slowly. What's interesting, though, so I referenced this organization earlier called the Institute for Well-Being and Law. It's comprised of legal employers. It's funded by legal employers. People want to offer programming to their employees. You know, you've heard the great resignation. It's happening in law firms. Mm. Um, so they, they they want to do things differently. They want things to be different. Everyone's trying to figure out what's the way to do that. Um, it, it, I've, I've talked to a couple of law firms, and, you know, they what, what they do have tried sometimes has not been as helpful as it needs to be. So, you know, telling people that they need to go to a well-being session mm-hmm. but still bill, you know, the same hours, yeah. that's just increasing the pressure right. um, on those associates. So that change, I think, is is happening. It's happening slowly. Um, I asked the same question, actually. We had uh, Justice Margot Botsford come talk to our class this past year, um, the former um Justice, and she is the she was the chair of the standing Massachusetts Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, and she came to talk to our students about changes. And I asked that question, Tom. I said, you know, you're talking to the students a lot about what students can do, mm-hmm. but we have to talk about change from the top. What's right. happening at the top? And she said, frankly, not enough. Yeah. But she felt that there was momentum, and she felt that actually it was partly going to be the students who demand change. Yeah. I think people are now, I know my students are asking where they interview, they're asking firms for more, they're more willing to ask questions about things that are related to well-being, which maybe we wouldn't have asked before. We would have thought that makes it seem like we're, you know, we're too interested in vacation or we're too interested in, in other resources. But I think we're, by bringing these conversations out in the open in every environment, Mm -hmm. it is going to force law firms also 
to really be proactive about making real change. Very good. Well, Professor George, thank you for your time today. I know you uh, have to get off to speak to us again. Uh, Professor George's book is called The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well. Uh, you can grab that. Thank you again for, uh, for speaking to us today. My Until next time, uh, this has been the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely, and uh, we'll catch you again soon.